Let me start you with a scripture that I'm going to come back to later. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. This is the Apostle Paul, who for the Corinthians, to some extent or another, was also Pastor Paul, right? He's, he's the guy that planted them as a church. He's the one that, um, that was their very, very first pastor. And remember, they weren't people that had learned a little bit at their old church and something from their mom and their grandma. Jesus was brand new to these folks when Paul brought the message of the gospel to them. And his, these verses are what I think part of what I think anyway, the Lord is speaking to us today. Paul says, I am jealous for you, you being the Corinthian church, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, a little s spirit from the big s spirit that you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. See, I think to some extent, for some of you, I'm going to blow up your Jesus today. Um, I'm going to blow up your gospel today. Well, I believe the Holy Spirit would blow up your gospel and blow up your Jesus. And it's only if your Jesus isn't the Jesus that Paul taught to the Corinthian church. In this world, there is a spirit that would lead people to a place that is not the truth. It's the spirit of light, that, or the spirit that masquerades as a spirit of light. It's not truth, it's not light, but it takes things and it bends them just a little bit. It's like a prism, maybe. That would be a good picture if you know what a prism is. You know, if it's a, it's a, a perfect pane of glass, the light will come right through it. And it'll hit the point that it's, that it's aimed towards. But if it's a prism, it's a glass, but as the light comes through, it bends and it goes a little different way. It's that, it's that bent light that that spirit of this world is preaching to people and it's people in the world and it's people in the church and this is the, this is what it, well this is a component of what it is it's this it's this sloppy grace it's this love of Jesus and grace of God the love of the Lord is so powerful that it overwhelms everything else and it defines my relationship with God so if you go out and you talk to somebody and, and you share with them the gospel and the words that Jesus teaches about to be a disciple, a follower of him, and, the, and how strict they are and how, how there's no fuzziness in them. And they say, oh, no, no, that's not God. I don't believe God would be like that. God loves me. Don't you understand? God loves me. And God's grace is amazing. And, and he's so graceful for anything that I want to do. But that's not what I see. As a matter of fact, I would, I would love for somebody to come and show me that, that God's love is all it takes to have relationship with him. Because it's not a fun message to preach, but I think it's a true message to preach. So what they think is, God loves me. His love is unconditional. I have some mental understanding of what I think love is. Therefore, I'm with God. I'll spend eternity with him. It's bad people that go to hell. It's good people that go to heaven. And that's my perception. But see, God's love is unconditional, right? He says that his, his son, S-U-N, son, and rain fall on the wicked as well as the just. And both of those, sunlight 
and rain, if you're an agricultural kind of a society, are good things to have. Your crops don't grow without sunlight and without rain. And he says that 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 blessing falls on everybody. God's love is no greater for you after you got saved than it was before you got saved. But his love does not define the parameters of relationship with his son and, and with him through his son. That's different. Relationship with him comes through what he says, and that's confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that he is the full payment for everything that would have separated you from God. His love is unconditional. It's there whether you belong to him or whether you belong to the world. Remember, there's no middle place called I'm sure. There's only two kingdoms, darkness and light. Whichever one you're in, he loves you, but his love for you does not define how he's willing to have relationship with you. Scripture talked about uh, this person that would come um, out of the wilderness, and he would make straight, make a path for for the coming Messiah, for the Lord. His, his name turned out to be John, John the Baptist, and he speak, he speak, he he preached a message of repentance. It was repentance, repentant hearts that would uh, prepare the way for the Messiah, the Messiah being Jesus. And Jesus came. And his very first message, really his whole message, was about the kingdom of heaven. And he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was trying to teach us. John was saying, you can't have relationship with the one that's coming unless you should repent. And Jesus said, you can't have relationship, you can't participate in the kingdom of heaven unless that you should repent. So the way that I think, and you might all have a perfect perception, um, you should teach me because I know mine is clouded sometimes, but the first thing I want to do today is I want to talk about what Jesus says, what the scripture says about being a follower of Jesus, about being a disciple. It's not sloppy grace. It's not everything is okay because he loves me. I mean, th- here's my personal definition of grace, and, and you could probably argue with this if you wanted to. I don't know that I could, I could stand doctrine on this, but I think that grace is not so that you can fail, right? God doesn't provide us grace to do whatever we want to do, right? Uh, did I just disappear? No, I did not. My flesh might lust after something that would be sinful. God's grace is not for me to choose to go and partake in that sin. God's grace is for when my heart, which is turned towards him, stumbles into that sin, and and I'm repentant that he doesn't spew me out of his mouth, that he doesn't kick me out of his kingdom because he looks past the sin that I did, and he applies his grace to the place of my heart that says that I belong to him because I've chosen to. That's my definition of grace. It's not so that we can do whatever we want, and then say, well, God, just so sorry, thanks for your grace, and go do it again, go do it again, go do it again. The, the word says that God will not be mocked, and I believe that that heart attitude is mocking towards God. Okay. Let's start first with the Great Commission, Matthew 28. 19 and 20. Go therefore. This is Jesus now, right? This is his kind of last words before he goes up to heaven. And then the the disciples would go to this place and pray and wait. And then the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And the church is literally born on that day. So Jesus has given him like his very final instructions before he goes up to be with the Father. And he says, go therefore and make disciples 
Keyword, disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, if you look through Scripture and you see how Jesus describes the label he puts on a follower, he uses the word disciple. He doesn't call us Christians. He doesn't call us believers. He calls us disciples. The goal is to be a disciple. Okay? Say amen if you, if you would agree that the goal is to be a disciple. Okay, thank you. Because if, if, you, if you don't believe that discipleship, I mean, and, and, and that's just a one-word thing that describes to maybe ultimately the goal is that we would perfectly reflect Christ in our lives, in our thoughts, in our beings, in everything that we do. A disciple would be one who looked just like the one he follows. Okay? If you don't, if you don't set that foundation, then what I'm going to read to you you're not going to have, your heart's not going to grasp onto that. Not that you won't be able to mentally understand it, but if your heart doesn't grab onto that's God's call for you, disciple, then we're going to miss the point today. What does a disciple look like? Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And hey, if I talk to you like, you know, you dirty, rotten, stinking sinner thing, I receive this. I mean, the Lord's always tender with me. But the, the, the thoughts in my head were strong. Like, you know, when you're, when you're talking to your kids and, and there's a car coming down the street and the ball rolls out in the street and you see your kid about to step off the curb, you don't say, uh, Junior, don't, don't go in the street, you know. You come out hard and you say, No! And I think that's the way the Lord is speaking to us today. He's trying to impress upon us with a loud voice a thing that he wants us to hear. So if it comes across like, Whoa, you know, mean pastor... Maybe, I don't know, but, but I think that's the way he's trying to speak to us. You know, when, it's, when I talked to you the other week about you see words repeated in Scripture, it's because there's emphasis on his words. He isn't, he isn't stuttering. He's making a, a verily, verily, he's saying, verily I say to you, truly I say to you, holy, when he does it the three times. He's trying to impress upon us. That's how they do it in the Scripture. So if you hear me get that way, I think it's because it's how he's wanting us to hear today. All right. If you ever wanted a tough test, this is it. Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. See, this is where Jesus shows you that he is not seeker sensitive. He is in love, seeking everybody, but he does not pander to untruth. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So at the beginning, he's saying, listen... If your devoted love, remember Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said that you've wandered away from your pure, sincere, simple devotion to Christ. 
if your devotion and your love isn't so passionate that it, it causes your love for the dearest people in your life to look like hate in comparison, stop the walk. Don't follow me. Because until you get yourself to that point, you can't be my disciple. Why? Because to be his disciple demands everything. Like that you would sell all your possessions. All of it. Or at least renounce it. Some, some versions say that you would renounce everything that you own unto him. In the middle part, he's talking about this guy that's going to build a tower or this king who's about to go into battle. And the tower guy is going to look a fool because he started building a tower, but he didn't have the means to finish it. And the king should really think hard before he goes into that battlefield with 10,000 against a king who's got 20,000. Can I win that battle? What he's saying is consider the cost. Now, honestly, what you're going to do otherwise, right? Jesus said to his disciples, I think it was when he said that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can have no part in me. And all the people are like, that is just too gross. And they walked away from him. And he looked to his inner guys, the closest ones, and he said, are you going to get up and go too? I think it was Peter. Bless his heart. He said, Lord, where are we going to go? You're the only one who has the words of life. And that's really the alternative. It's like, okay, if the cost is too great, what's the alternative? Live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse and just really feel bad about it for eternity in hell? I don't think so. It's to choose to pay the cost. This was revelation for me as I was studying just yesterday. John chapter 15, um, verses 8, 13, and 14, but just one at a time. I want to talk to them about. Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus is giving us a definition of how you know if you're a disciple or not. If you can look at your life and see fruitfulness, transformation, godliness, if you can see those things in your life, then you are bringing glory to the Father and you are actually demonstrating and proving that you truly are his disciple. He goes on then in uh, verse 14, he says, you are my, oh, in 13 he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And the thing that struck me was that I always had thought, and I, and, I, and I still think this, but in a different way now, that Jesus laid down his life for everybody, that there's not a soul born on this planet that Jesus didn't lay down his life for. But he says here he lays down his life for his friends. So maybe the implication is that some people will choose to be friends with Jesus and some people will not choose to be friends with Jesus. Because he goes on in the very next verse and he says how you be his friend. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. See, the sloppy gospel says that all you got to do is pray a prayer, come to church maybe once in a while, live your life, be a good person, go to heaven, spend eternity with God. But Jesus says that he laid his life down for his friends. And he defines a friend as somebody that would be obedient to his command. That, that would bring glory to the Father by producing fruit in their lives. The gospel of the world says, pray this prayer and believe. And you can find scripture that says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But I think Romans chapter 10 dis describes what faith or belief is. It says the, the, the word of faith that is in your mouth, it's on your lips. And, and that word of faith is that you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord requires you to do work, to repent, to love, 
Matter of fact, I think in the John verses where he says, You're, you are my friends if you do what I command you, if you looked at that in its, in its really tight, proper context, the proper context of his command is to love one another. Because earlier he says, a, 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 this command I give to you that you love one another. But see, he says also that love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. These are the two greatest commands in all the law, all the prophets. Everything hangs on these two. So everything that you might do or might not do is driven by, if it's driven by love, then you've, you've satisfied, do as I command you to do. If, if we preach that you believe, but not that Jesus must be Lord of your life, I think we're leading people to a place where they maybe think they're okay and they're not okay. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus now. And having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him, obey him the source of eternal salvation. Where is believing in that? It speaks to obedience. Faith is a bigger picture than just, I believe. Faith requires obedience. Jesus was made to those who obey him eternal salvation. The, the, the opposite implication is that to the disobedient, he, he's not eternal salvation. Why did Jesus say, and why did John the Baptist say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the king is coming. Because repentance is about obedience. Repent from what? I don't know what to repent from. Well, he's going to tell you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. Here's what I think. I think that our battle, gosh, the Lord gave me words for this. What the Holy Spirit is battling in us is the current of culture driven by the spirit of the world. There's this powerful current. If you have a way, Isaac, to mute the sound but play that video that I... It should be just very next. Watch this, and I'll, and I'll talk to you as you see this. Here's this river. It's just overflowing, and it's just pouring with this really powerful, strong current going in a certain direction. And even though it looks horrible... In the context that I'm trying to teach from today, it's really nice to the flesh. It feels good. It's things like comfort and convenience and, and pleasure and entertainment and, and all the things that our, fresh, our flesh cries out for. And the, the enemy is feeding and feeding and feeding with the spirit into our culture, into our society that says that the king of this world is you. You exist for your own pleasure, and we're in this current, and it's just pushing at us, pushing at us. But like this guy, we got to be swimming against the current. we got to swim against the current of culture. Otherwise, either we just give in, or we're deceived, and we just flow with the current. And the current says, hey, it's okay. It's all right. Do what you want, because God loves you, and he has grace for you. And he does have grace for you if you love him. That's what I think it looks like, that, that rushing river. That's, that's culture. That's society. Christians, oh, you're all just a bunch of haters, and, 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 you're, and you're just exclusive. And it's like, no, no. If you're really a Christian, you know that you're the most sorry person ever. Not judgmental, but praying that all the people, all the sheep would come home. Okay, so this is the scripture that the Lord stirred me with 
um, on this whole thing. This is the book of Revelation. And at the beginning of the book of Revelation, um, John, the guy that we know as the Apostle John, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the writers of, of all those um, biblical texts that we have, he's on this island called Patmos. And he has this vision and he, and he meets Jesus, and it's, it's literally the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he tells them to write these letters. Write down what you saw. Don't change anything. And he starts off with the, these letters to these seven churches. Now, I have not studied this personally, so I'm just telling you what I've heard. But, but I've heard that these seven churches, like Philadelphia and Ephesus and Laodicea and um, Sardis and I forget the rest, are churches that John was connected to. So he hears, he gets this vision from God, he writes these things down, and Jesus says, write to the angel of the church of Sardis, write to the angel of the church at Laodicea, write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, of Philadelphia, these things. And Jesus is, is giving a critique of their, their walk with him, I guess. And there's two of them that he, that he really stirred me with, because I think he's saying these things to us. And it's, it's, it's relevant to us if you believe that our culture... The spirit of this world in this culture is trying to draw us away, draw us to, ah, I'm just too busy to, to pray. I just, you know, I don't really like to do it that much. I'd, I'd rather watch TV. I, I blah, 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 All the spirit stuff of the world that draws us away from that pure and sincere devotion to Christ. So here's part of what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. Notice he starts off with the word deeds. He measures this whole thing by deeds. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I self to anoint your eyes so that you may see... Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, because of all these things, now here's what you do. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine, or, or, and will dine with him and he with me. See, it's important to understand that Jesus is not talking to unbelievers. He's not telling people that haven't made the confession of him as Lord, and believed by faith in their hearts that he really was the one that made the full payment for their sin. He's speaking to people like us that have already made that thing. And he's telling them two really important things. One, he's saying, I see your deeds. And from looking at your deeds, from the way you do things, from the way your life looks, from how you walk, you're lukewarm. And your call is not lukewarm. Your, your call is hot, on fire, burning, constantly for me, Jesus. And the other thing I see is that you're deceived. See, you have these thoughts in your mind, but there's a deception that's over you. And that deception is that you're okay, that everything's just fine. You're rich, you're wealthy, you don't need anything. And because we're looking at ourselves, we stand in the, in the mirror of the natural. And we say, hey, you know, what is life? Life is pleasure, it's comfort, it's contentment, it's entertainment. It's, it's all this stuff that's about me. And when I look in the mirror... I see, hey, my mirror is wrapped around by a nice house. You know, there's a bunch of food in the fridge. I've obviously never been hungry in my life. All these things, I don't, I don't need anything. But when I do, like my kid gets sick or 
I might lose my job because they're doing layoffs. Man, I am on my face. And I'm crying out to God because I recognize my need. But it's still a natural need. He's saying you're so blind, you need salve to put on your eyes because you're looking at your situation through natural eyes and you need to look through them Look at it through spiritual eyes and see that your situation is naked, blind, wretched. Repent and do what? Be zealous. For what? For Jesus. Repent and be zealous. Here's what lukewarm looks like. Lukewarm looks like proud, self-sufficient. I got this one, Lord. I can take care of it. Jesus says in the context of the Spirit that you can produce no fruit unless that you abide in me. Matter of fact, I was, he, he gave me John 15 as we were worshiping. And in the beginning of John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you're the branch. Or in my mind, I picture a tree with branches, right? And my father is the vine dresser. And when we prayed today, hopefully what we were praying is that the vine dresser who prunes us, he takes off. See, Jesus and the Father, they're looking at us, and he says that the vine has to abide, or the branch has to abide in the vine. If the branch isn't connected to the vine, no fruit can come off. But even there's some parts of you that don't produce good fruit. They're yucky. So my Father, the vine dresser, comes in and he prunes those parts off so that the branches that remain, that are abiding in the Lord, can produce this excellent fruit for the kingdom. But outside of abiding in Jesus, we can produce no good fruit. If you wanted a piece of revelation for your day, if you think that anything that matters eternally comes from your ability, your goodness, your strength, it doesn't. It only comes that you would draw on Jesus as the vine, as the branch draws. See, the vine doesn't, doesn't push anything to the branch. The vine produces or provides for the branch as the branch draws on the vine. That's, that's the actual natural way that a plant works. That's the way that the kingdom works. If we choose to be satisfied, we stop because we, we stop being hungry. When we're hungry, we draw on that vine for the nourishment that will bring us to a place of producing excellent fruit. Lukewarm, proud, self-sufficient, complacent, indifferent, casual, disengage. This is where the, the Lord's voice is getting loud. It, you should hear it because if you feel, if you sense him telling you that you're complacent, that you're disengaged, that you're proud, that you're just kind of in the current, you're just flowing down there and it's like, la, 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 it feels okay to me, Lord. You got to wake up. You got to wake up. Hot looks like humble, God-dependent, longing, passionate, zealous, engaged. You know, God gave us the word passion, and he stirred that same word up again when we're praying on Wednesday nights. If you remember, when we were back at the high school, I was getting ready, you know, worship was ending. I think I'd gotten the nod from Isaac, or I was about to go up, or whatever. And as I started to move away from the stage, you know, from the down there part of the stage, Something stopped me, and, and I just said, Lord, is there anything that you're trying to tell me this morning before I go up there? And just a scream in my ears, I heard the word passion. Well, you put that, I, I put the picture up there. It was so, so big a deal, I, I pulled my little 3x5 card out. I put it down, and I wrote passion. That's, that's literally the 3x5 card that was in my pocket that day. And then on my way up, because at the high school, you had to go up and back and around to get to the stage, there's my friend Lisa Taylor. And Lisa Taylor, she was a huge discipling influence on me as I was learning Jesus. And she happened to be there that day. And I said, hey, Lisa, pray for me. You know, before I get up there, pray for me. So Lisa laid her hands on me, and she starts praying in the Spirit. And all of a sudden, it's almost like she's like, whoa. And 
oh my gosh, Lord, Lord, oh my gosh. And I'm, I know something's happening, but I don't know what's happening. I say, Lisa, what is it? What is it? She said, he's screaming in my words, passion, 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 passion. And I about flipped out. I said, Lisa, look, just not 10 seconds ago. I, well, look. <laughs> I asked the Lord, what are you trying to say to me? And he said, passion. And I wrote it on this piece of paper because it was so impressed upon me. And he, he knows me because I'll forget in five seconds. But he re-impressed it upon me by sharing it with Lisa. And he didn't just say, hey, Lisa, passion. I mean, he knocked her out with this passion, passion, passion. See, passion is zeal. Passion is hunger. Passion is, is chasing after the Lord. Passion isn't being in that river of, oh, yeah, it's nice. I think I might do that tomorrow. Yeah, I don't want to pray today because my new show is on. And He's calling us to passion, and he's confirming his word for us just two or three weeks ago. And then every week since in our Wednesday night prayer, he's been speaking that word to other people. You're lukewarm and you're deceived. So lukewarm kind of looks like those things and hot kind of looks like those things. Deception, I think, in our context looks like I think I'm okay with God, but I'm not. And I'm not even saying that you're not saved okay, but you're not pleasing necessarily or we're not pleasing necessarily okay. Because he didn't say I've spat you out of my mouth. And when he says, I will spit you out, the literal is vomit. It's like it's so nasty. I'm like, you know, get it out of me. That's what lukewarmness is like to the Lord. He says, I will spit you out. So he's being gracious, and he's saying, listen, you know, repent. Be zealous. The deception is, hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm dialed into the kingdom. I'm okay because of God's love and his grace. And, and honestly, if you're okay, that is why you're okay. But it's, it's because you made a decision. But if, if lukewarmness has gotten into us, it's got to get out of us. If you think of a road, and over here is hot and over here is cold, lukewarm is like a speed bump. That's what this is. It's like a speed bump on the way from hot to cold. Now, some people um, interpret the scriptures where hot and cold are both good, that it's not hot is good and cold is bad, and you're kind of halfway in between. And, and other scholars interpret that hot is good and cold is bad. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, my sense is that hot is good and cold is bad, but I could be wrong. But there's no doubt in my mind that lukewarm is not good, right? So whatever it is that, that lukewarm is on the path to, we want to go someplace else. And that place is at least hot. Maybe it's hot or cold if cold is considered refreshing and I don't know what. You know, I haven't started on the, the Sermon on the Mount yet, but the very first of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and God's given me so much I never understood. And, and I probably only have a little understanding now, but, but poor in spirit is the person that cries out to the Lord and understands their nakedness and understands their blindness and understands their need from God versus the one who is spiritually arrogant and perceives no need at all. The second um, church in Revelation that I think the Lord is speaking to me. And when I say me, trust me, listen, he is, he, you saw me two Sundays ago. He told me that was a spirit of repentance. Maybe he showed you on me before he showed you on you. I don't know. But I'm, I understand my need for repentance. I, I understand that, that it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to get comfortable. And he, and he whacked me hard, and he let me do it right in front of all of you, when I say you, I'm saying me too, okay? 
seriously. There's so much ceiling room between walking tight with Jesus how he wants me to and where my head's at right now. So I'm in, I'm, I'm in this message just as much as anybody else. So here's what he says to the church at Ephesus. But I have this against you. So there was actually some good things that he said. I don't know that Laodicea got any good words, but Ephesus got some good words too. But he says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, because you left your first love, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. And do what? Repent. And do what? The deed you did at first. Anybody remember how you were when you very first got saved? Was there a higher level of zealousness? I remember when Teresa got saved. I wasn't saved. It's like, what happened to my wife? If there was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to be made for somebody, Teresa was making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. If there was a worship service going on, Teresa was worshiping. If there was a youth service, she was there. She was so hungry for the Lord. And I'm not telling you Teresa's zeal has waned. I mean, she spends all day long trying to soak up what the Lord is saying. She's reading. She's watching teachings, all kinds of stuff. But that was how I remember early zealousness. That's what the the baby Christian, the new Christian looks like to me. And what he's saying is, you've fallen from your first love, or you've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen and repent, change, do the deed you did at first, or else, uh uh-oh, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, I don't know exactly what the lampstand represents. I know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about a light, that that we should be this light, and that you don't put a light under a basket, you set it up on a lampstand where everybody can see, where it can bring light to the room. Some of the commentators say that that lampstand represents your standing connected to God as a church. Maybe it does, I don't know. But again, I know that if I have a lampstand, or we collectively have a lampstand, we don't want God to take away our lampstand to where we have no light to shine at all, like he, like he put a basket over our light. We want him to take like we do with these things, right, and, and twist the knob of our lampstand and put it higher so our light can shine greater, right? A city on a hill, on a little hill or a big hill. Lord, I want to be so bright. I want to reflect your glory to such an extent that you would want to put us on the highest hill where everybody can see how awesome you are. Again, he opens up with the issue of deeds. How are you living your life? What are the things that you're doing? Your passion, your zeal seems to be measured. The way you bring glory to your father, good fruit, good deeds, works, how you do that. Okay. The church of Ephesus again. Now this is the the apostle Paul. Paul establishes this church in Ephesus and then he goes off on his missionary journeys and he plants churches and he's doing all the stuff that Paul did and he writes these letters as he's you know, kind of getting word of what's going on in these different churches. Now he's kind of like a bishop over all these churches. He writes this to the, to the church at Ephesus, which is the church that Jesus said that you wandered away from your first love. I think he's saying this to us. Chapter 4, 17 through 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles, which would be non-disciples, people that are not confessed to be followers of Christ, that you walk as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. See, from the perspective of the kingdom, the Gentiles' mind, the person who's not a disciple, their thoughts, the meditations of their minds, all the things that stir, stir around in there, they're futile. They're, they're fruitless. That's why he tells us to repent, to change the way we think. Um, gosh, if I keep doing this, the scripture won't make any sense. 
in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, in, excluded from the life of God. Remember, he's talking to the church here. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality. They're in that river. For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him. And have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life. Is it a former manner of life, or is it the same life? Oh, Jesus, I prayed the prayer. Lord, all the same things, nothing changes. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So Paul is saying to Ephesus, he's like, church, what the heck? What's going on? Have you heard Christ? Are you being deceived? Is holiness, is the pursuit of holiness got any place? Or is it just a little tiny place? You know, the kind of thing where, like the Pharisees, they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They were good looking on the outside, never cussed in front of anybody else, but behind closed doors, you, all restraint comes off. He's asking the church, what's going on? You've got to change the way you think church. I'm Paul still, not Pat, sorry. <laughs> you got to change the way you speak. you got to cry out to the Lord. you got to be so broken in spirit that you understand that your thoughts are not kingdom thoughts, and you cry out. You say, God, you have to transform me by the renewing of my mind. The spirit of my mind has got to change because I see the fruit of all these things that are not the fruit that would come off the branch that's abiding in the vine that's Jesus. Paul to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised to you, or excuse me, I promised you to one husband so that I may, might present you as a pure virgin to him. See, we're betrothed. When you said those words, when you confessed Jesus as Lord, you became betrothed to Christ. You get to be the wife, he gets to be the husband. For us guys, it's just how it is. Somehow it works out. When you're committed to someone, when betrothed, my best understanding is in our culture you get engaged. That, that represents a certain level of commitment. And then you get married, and that covenant happens with God that, that demonstrates a higher level of commitment to the covenant between the two people and themselves with God. Okay? My understanding is betrothal is greater than engaged, but not quite to the place of marriage because you haven't actually consummated the union. Okay? My, that's my best guess. And what he's saying is, I led you to Jesus, and I promised you to him as husband, just him, so that you might be presented as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived, remember, you're lukewarm and you're deceived. Just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, it's a different Jesus. It's a false Jesus. It's a Jesus that says, hey, I'm so glad you prayed the prayer. 
go do whatever you want and we'll just, I'll hang out with you in heaven. A Jesus different than the one that you received. Or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the gospel from the one you accepted, you seem to put up with it easily enough. You're just okay with it. You're comfortable. Hey, preach me whatever you want. Because I think it's 2 Timothy that says, in that day, they will accumulate for themselves these teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. Ah, I don't want to repent. I don't want to be zealous. I want to do what I want to do. I got this flesh, and my flesh doesn't like that. So I'm going to go someplace and accumulate for myself someone that will teach me about this grace that doesn't have any limits. It's just okay to do whatever I want. The narrow path isn't narrow, it's wide. There's no boundaries on my path. I prayed the prayer. See, that's what he's telling these guys. It's like they came in and taught you a different Jesus, a different gospel. That's not the spirit that you received. When I came through and planted him, I laid my hands on you. And you're just like, great, I like this one better. You can't have that one and be okay. James chapter 4 and verse 4. This is, I love James because James is like, if there's just some way I can punch you in the nose to get a message across to you. He's, he doesn't like hug you as he's telling you what, you, you know. Huh. James in chapter 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world floating down that river, get in your inner tube and float down that world river, that comfort, don't have any deeds. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14? He said, if any of you does not hate your mother, hate your father, hate your brothers, hate your children, hate your parents, literally hate your life, you can't be my disciple. It's what, it's what he's saying here. You want to be a friend with the world? Knock yourself out. Free will. You get to have it. But that isn't this. This is discipleship. He talks about your minds. The problem is in the way you think. He tells you again that you're deceived. He says that, that you wandered away from the sincerity. To be sincere is free from pretense or deceit proceeding from genuine, sincere feelings, purity, freedom from adulteration or contamination, devotion, love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. I love that. He says, from this devotion to Christ. What is devotion? It's love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person. Who's the person? It's Jesus, right? Or an activity. What's the activity? All those good works, all those deeds, all that love that he's prepared for you to offer, right? And the third thing is, or a cause. What's the cause? The cause is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, through your good works, that you would advance the kingdom of heaven. Through that love that you would express to your neighbor as yourself, to the Lord your God, with everything that you have. So he's telling us to repent. And he's given us a spirit of repentance. That grace, you know, I keep talking about grace, good grace, bad grace, real grace, false grace. Grace operates in an environment of humility. Grace never, ever operates in an environment of pride. James, I think, and Peter in one of his letters, I think, says that God resists the proud. Literally, if, if you come to God in pride, he not only is neutral towards you, he's resistive towards you, but that he embraces the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So if you think about the scriptures about lukewarm, 
Somebody's going to need to pray a spirit of tall on me. It's like this. This is what he's saying. First love. Excellent works. Excellent works. I think I would hear me even better. (laughs) Over here. Hot. First love. Excellent works. Time goes on and you start to walk. You start to walk. A little less, a little less, a little less. Over there, that's cold. A little less. You're going for a walk. All of a sudden, Jesus says, Hey, John, I need you to write a letter to these guys. Tell them you're lukewarm. You're at this, lukewarm is this place. It's a place on the path from hot to cold, from relevant to irrelevant, from passionate to impassionate, from connected, engaged, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to doing nothing because you've got some kind of spiritual arrogance that you don't think you understand that you've gotten to a place, but the only place to aspire to in the kingdom is down, down in humility, down in serving, down in sacrifice. So you get here, and what is he saying? He's saying repent and be zealous. What does it look like? It's so simple. It looks like this. And we walk back over here to the place of hot, to burning, to excellent deeds, to things that are pleasing to the Lord. Two more quick scriptures. Mark 1, 1 through 4. This is the, literally the beginning of the gospel of Mark. The, it, says the begin, it says right there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So the prophecy from Isaiah, he's recanting. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will, who will repair, prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There must be repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It starts off with a commitment and a confession to Jesus as Lord, which means that I will repent because if you're Lord, I'll do what you tell me to do. And that will be repenting from the things that you didn't tell me I should be doing. John came and preached repentance. We're going to ask for a baptism of repentance. Matthew 4.17, so he prepared the way for Jesus. When Jesus came, what did he say? Right out of the wilderness, when his ministry began, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> it's weird. So what do we do? What, what, what is it that we do? I think if we could do it on our own, I don't know, because I think we can't do it on our own. I think it comes from this place of recognizing the poverty of our spirit, the need for God to come and move. For me to repent, even since he blasted me two weeks ago, it's been sort of a struggle to turn away from, you know, not evil things. I mean, well, they're evil if they're not of God, but not what we would perceive horrible evil things, but just from the 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 complacency that's found its way into my life constantly having to cry out to god you have to help me lord bring that spirit of repentance on me all the time convict me in my thoughts it's hunger and thirst one of the beatitudes says blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied see it's that thirst that hunger that desire that passion that causes the 
branch to draw on the vine. It's hungry. A, a, a branch that's not hungry won't draw. And no, no good fruit's going to come because it's a, it's, a, it's a satisfied branch. Bill Johnson, it's interesting to me how the different people that you know, I stumble across or listen to sort of regularly as they preach, the same message comes out. It's God speaking to, you know, we're just a little part of a great big church that's the body of Jesus. And Bill Johnson was talking about hunger and thirst. It's another way to say passion. And, and he said that the, the kingdom is different from the natural in that in the natural, he said hunger in either place is a good thing, right? It, it's, it's signaling you that you need something. And in the natural, if you're hungry, you eat and you're satisfied. But in, in the spiritual, it, when you're hungry, you eat and it makes you more hungry. And so, so if you're saying, Lord, I don't, I'm just, eh, you know, I'm not that hungry, then eat. What should I eat? Eat testimony. Eat scripture. Read about Jesus and what he did. Jesus, what he said, because as you eat, he'll stir your hunger. Okay. I'm the worst altar call guy, I think, that ever stood up with a microphone. Are you coming to help me, Isaac? Bless your heart. I don't know how to stir passion in you. You have to decide. And then you have to cry out to God. He has told us that he will help us to repent if we'll cry out to him. So let's, if you want to, I mean, if you don't, then I would say, man, the first step ought to be get saved. Maybe let's do that first. See, Scripture says, it's one another one of those weird conversations that was going on in my head. I had, I had this vision of, People arguing with me, oh, Pat, you know, you're just legalist and you don't understand and, you know, you don't get grace and you don't get love and blah, blah, blah. And, and my little voice was saying, yes, I do, yes, I do, yes, I do. And all of a sudden the scripture comes to my mind that says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And, and the words and the ways of the spirit, when you talk to the carnal mind, someone who doesn't have Holy Spirit inside of them, it's nonsense to them. And I don't know if that's, if that's the Lord speaking but if you're not born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, then you can't, none of this can make sense to you. You can't be broken by the Word of God to repent, to be like Jesus, unless that you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit only comes when you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that, hey, I am a sinner. I have this revelation that comes because God is drawing on me that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I can't save myself. And I get this revelation that Jesus is the full payment for everything that ever separated me from God or ever will separate me from God. So do just a second with your eyes closed. If there's anybody here that either has never made that confession of Jesus as Lord and come to that realization of themselves as a sinner and Jesus is the full payment for your sin and you feel like today is the day for you because tomorrow you don't necessarily going to get. Just put your hand up where I can see it. Or if you're somebody who thinks you did, but maybe you're not sure, put your hand up where I can see it. Okay. All right. All but one of you is 
certain of your situation with God, then these words should have meant something to you because his word will never return back to him void. You go ahead if you're ready. As Pastor Pat was speaking, I heard um, two words. Reckless abandonment. See, in the world, we're taught not to be reckless. That being reckless is a bad thing. But in the kingdom of God, which is an upside-down kingdom to this natural world, being reckless with the things of God, the things in God, having a reckless abandonment for God, abandonment for God, is a good thing. If Let me ask you a question. You can all close your eyes. You don't have to raise your hand. It's you and God right now. Have you wandered even the slightest little bit away from your first love? Have the passion and the zeal changed in you over time? Is there any complacency? Lukewarmness. Are you lukewarm? Are you burning and passionate for God? Are you crying out to him day and night to transform you into the likeness of Jesus, to use you for the purpose of his kingdom, to prune however much it hurts those pieces of your branch that don't produce fruit off of you so that your primary objective is to glorify your Father with the excellent fruit that comes off of your branch prove to be Jesus' friend that you'd love him. If any of that is true, if you're somewhere on that path and your direction is pointed away from hot and towards cold, then I say now is the time to ask for the spirit of repentance. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would loose that spirit of repentance over us now, that we would cry out to you, God, that we would cry out to you with a humble, broken, contrite heart and repent from our evil ways. Anyway, Lord, even if it doesn't seem evil to us, if it's not consistent with your heart for our lives, Lord, it's evil. I pray that that spirit would rest on us today. Yes, Lord. Come on us, Lord. Anybody, if you, have a, if you have a sense that you need to repent, I would invite you to come forward and make a statement to the Lord. Come and place yourself Romans 12, what's it say? That we would offer ourselves living, holy sacrifices. That we would just come and offer ourselves up to the Lord in mm -hmm. humble repentance. Mm -hmm. And the broken and contrite heart. God loves a contrite heart. He can work in a contrite heart. And if you're unsure, come forward. You see, there, you can be reckless and aban abandonment in your repentance too. If you don't know, he's your heavenly father. Nothing but good can happen in repentance. But I guarantee you, if you don't repent, you can expect nothing good to happen. Our hearts will grow cold, calloused. It's like Romans chapter 1. We're not playing games. Yeah. You have to be so careful that, that we don't, get so disconnected from the Holy Spirit that he turns us over to an, what is it, unregenerate um, a reprobate 
that our hearts are calloused and, and they're not soft and pliable and they don't realize and feel when the Holy Spirit is trying to touch us and draw us back to the Lord. I pray, God, that the spirit of self-conscious would just be bound up in this place. Lord, that every person who's feeling this, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to be the one. What if he makes me cry? That that thing would just, we would just cast it down, that we wouldn't be self-conscious or proud or concerned about fear of man, that only the fear of the Lord and, and the fear of his judgment on us, that, that we might fall short in any way to his calling would be what rests upon us today, that heavy spirit of repentance. Lord, I'm so sorry. I would even go as far to say, if every area in your life is holy, then stay in your seats. But if there's one area which I'm on my knees, God, draw your people. Draw your people right now. Father, we want to be holy as you are holy. And it's through your kindness and your love that you draw us to repentance. Because you know the consequences. And you also know the blessings. God, I choose for myself today the blessings. But first comes the repentance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God, we put you back on the throne of our lives. Allowing you, giving you full reign. Releasing control. We release the reins into your hands. of our lives. Knowing you know the plans you have for us from the beginning, from the foundations before the earth was created. You had a plan and a purpose for our lives. God, right now we repent and we make a decision to engage with you in this process. Holy unto you. Holy abandoned to our own will we say your will be done in my life, in our lives God we submit that to you today, we submit ourselves to your authority God help us with our unbelief Just in our last few minutes, just if you would, I know maybe everybody is, pray that prayer of repentance. Pray, cry out, don't be afraid. It doesn't have to be under your breath. It's good. It's okay. Remember the vision that God gave me when I said to him, Lord, where is my love? And he looked down at me with this face. He was just as big as the sky. And I looked at him, and he looked at me with his face, and the face was like, Pat, I don't know what else I could do. I don't know what more I could do to show you how much that you're loved. 
And all of a sudden I realized that I was seeing that face through the hole in his hand. And it broke me to the place of such, such sorrow, such just repentance. Lord, I'm so sorry. You have to teach me every day. You have to teach me every day to stay in the center of your narrow path. You have to convict me, Lord, and you have to shower me. You have to help me to receive your love so that I, I don't fall away and wander away and start loving things that aren't you, God. I don't want to believe the Jesus that's not the Jesus that Paul preached. I don't want the spirit that's not the spirit that Paul released over those folks in Corinth and Ephesus. I want the true spirit. I want the conviction, the discipline. You say that you discipline those that you love. Lord, that you stand at the door and knock. I don't want to be the arrogant person that would just let you stand outside and knock and that I wouldn't open the door. But if I open the door, I know what it means, God. It's a door that opens a thousand times because you stand at the door and you knock at this part of me that it's time to surrender. Will I open the door and invite you in? Will I have a meal with you? And, and just release this thing that you don't want me to have anymore, this, this passion for the world. Lord, I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want to be your friend. I want to be the one that does the things that you want me to do. I want to be the one that loves the way you want me to love, to be expressed to everybody, Lord. It was so beautiful, the picture of the Christians that stood behind the fence at the gay parade, and they had on shirts that said, I'm sorry. And they had up signs, I'm sorry for how our churches have, have treated you. They didn't say it's okay, that God's okay with your behavior. They said that we love you and we're sorry. And because it's kindness that leads people to repentance, not condemnation. Lord, I want that heart. I want that love. Church, I'm just asking you from the very bottom of my heart, please come on Wednesday. Please come on Wednesday. Come hungry, prepared to receive that spirit of repentance. I don't think it's a two-minute work. I think it's a, it's a constant work, and I think the Lord has got more for us in this area, and I don't... I don't know whether it's come the way he planned it to come or it didn't come the way he planned it to come because I've never done this before. But I know that he wants us to turn away from being lukewarm and turn away from being a friend of the world and increase our passion because he's got a work for us to do and it won't get done any other way. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for the sacrifice of Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that before we get to cold, you warn us because we don't want to be spit out of your mouth. We want to be in you, always in you, abiding in you, Lord. And we don't want our lampstand taken away, God. We want our lampstand to be extended taller, and you'll help us if we'll just let you to be transformed, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, returning back to that first love, that devotion to you, God. We pray this always in Jesus' name. We ask you to keep convicting us, keep transforming us.